It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, August 5, 2020. On today's episode, we have an encore presentation of author Emily St. John Mandel, who will be presenting her fifth novel, The Glass Hotel. Her previous novels include Station Eleven, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award, and she also won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award. The Glass Hotel has been reviewed in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Guardian, The Globe and Mail. She's a well-known author. She lives in New York, and she is here to talk to you about her book. We're very excited for that. We also have Morning Book Review, or perhaps it should be called Afternoon Book Review, with Kathy Diamond. Kathy will be speaking about the book The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Before starting the show, just a quick announcement. Uh, there was a bike safety event today at Trudeau Park. In fact, it just finished at about two o'clock. But there is another one next week, next Wednesday, August 12, also from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Now, the event, which is called the Bike Rodeo, is organized by the Montreal Police Department. And the way it works is that uh, the cadets from PDQ-9 uh, teach the kids about bike safety. So we encourage folks uh, to bring their kids to learn about bike safety from the cadets at PDQ-9. Uh, parents have to register. If you visit CoteStLuke.org, you'll find the link on the front page. Click the registration button and then come next Wednesday, August 12th at 1 p.m. All right. Let's start the show. Here is Emily St. John Mandel. Hello, my name is Emily St. John Mandel, and I'm speaking to you today from New York City, but I'm originally from Canada, from British Columbia. I have a new book that just came out a few weeks ago. It's called The Glass Hotel, published by HarperCollins in Canada. It's a really hard book to try to describe. My starting point for the book was that I wanted to write about white collar crime. I was really interested in the idea of writing about people caught up in a massive Ponzi scheme, the perpetrators, the victims, the bystanders. I also wanted to write a ghost story. That was something that I'd been thinking about doing for a while. So the result is The Glass Hotel. It's my fifth novel that came out a few weeks ago. And I thought I'd read to you for a little bit from the book today. The section I'm going to read contains a woman, uh, sorry, concerns a woman named Vincent. And I see her as being very much at the heart of this book. She's someone who grew up in a very working class environment, but she was a bartender for years. And what that means is that she was quite, you know, she becomes quite comfortable dealing with people from a whole range of economic backgrounds. And in the section I'm going to read, she's been kind of swept off her feet. A very wealthy man came into the bar where she worked on Vancouver Island and has swept her off into this very sort of surreal uh, world of money. And I think I'm going to jump right in. Oh, and uh, here's a detail, which is not really a spoiler. I think you get this on the back of the book. Um, the man who she's, uh, who she's with, Jonathan, is a criminal. He's running a Ponzi scheme, but she doesn't know it. Sanity depends on order. Within a month of leaving the Hotel Cayette and arriving in Jonathan Alcatus's absurdly enormous house in the Connecticut suburbs, Vincent had established a routine from which she seldom wavered. She rose at 5 a.m. and spent the day in Manhattan, 
shopping, wandering through art galleries, walking the streets with her video camera, then made her way back to Grand Central Station and a northbound train, in time to be home and dressed in something beautiful by 6 p.m., which was the earliest Jonathan would conceivably arrive home from the office. She spent the evening with Jonathan, but always found a half hour to go swimming at some point before bed. In the kingdom of money, as she thought of it, there were enormous swaths of time to fill, and she had intimations of danger in letting herself drift, in allowing a day to pass without a schedule or a plan. People clamor to move into Manhattan, Jonathan said, when she asked why they couldn't just live in his pied-à-terre on Columbus Circle, where they stayed sometimes when they had theater tickets. But I like being a little outside of it all. He'd grown up in the suburbs and had always loved the tranquility and the space. I see your point, Vincent said, but the city drew her in. The city was the antidote to the riotous green of her childhood memories. She wanted concrete and clean lines and sharp angles, sky visible only between towers, hard light. Anyway, you wouldn't be happy living in Manhattan, Jonathan said. Think of how much you'd miss the pool. Would she miss the pool? She reflected on the question as she swam. Her relationship with the pool was adversarial. Vincent swam every night to strengthen her will because she was desperately afraid of drowning. Diving into the pool at night. In summer, Vincent drove through the lights of the house, reflected on the surface. In winter, the pool was heated, so she dove into steam. She stayed underwater for as long as possible, testing her endurance. When she finally surfaced, she liked to pretend that the ring on her finger was real and that everything she saw was hers. The house, the garden, the lawn, the pool in which she treaded water. It was an infinity pool which created a disorienting impression that the water disappeared into the lawn or the lawn disappeared into the water. She hated looking at that edge. Her contract with Jonathan, as she understood it, was that she'd be available whenever he wanted her, in and out of the bedroom. She would be elegant and impeccable at all times. You bring such grace to the room, he'd said. And in return for this, she had a credit card whose bills she never saw, a life of beautiful homes and travel. In other words, the opposite of the life she'd lived before. No one actually uses the phrase trophy wife in conversation, but Jonathan was 34 years older than Vincent. She understood what she was. There were adjustments to be made. At first, living in Jonathan Alcatus's house was like those dreams where you find a door in your kitchen that you never noticed before, and then the door leads into a back hallway that opens up into a never-used au pair suite, which opens into an unused nursery, which is down the corridor from the master bedroom suite, which is larger than your entire childhood home. And then later you realize that there's a way of getting from the bedroom to the kitchen without setting foot in either of the two living rooms or the downstairs hall. In her days working in hotels, Vincent had always associated money with privacy. The wealthiest hotel guests have the most space around them, suites instead of rooms, private terraces, access to executive, to executive lounges. But in actuality, the deeper you go into the kingdom of money, the more crowded it gets, people around you in your home all the time, which was why Vincent only swam at night. In the daytime, there was the house manager, Gil, who lived with his wife, Anya, in a cottage by the driveway. Anya, who was the cook, supervised three young women who kept the house clean and did laundry and accepted grocery deliveries and such. 
There was also a chauffeur who had an apartment over the garage and a silent groundskeeper who maintained everything outside of the house. Every time Vincent looked up, someone was nearby, sweeping or dusting or talking on the phone to the plumber or or trimming a hedge. It was a lot of people to contend with, but at night the staff retreated into their private lives, and Vincent could swim in peace without feeling watched from every window. I'm glad you're enjoying the pool, Gil said. The pool design consultants spent so much time on it, and I swear no one ever used it before you got here. She was in the pool when she first met Jonathan's daughter, Claire. It was a cool evening in April, steam rising from the water. She'd known Claire was coming over that evening, but she hadn't expected to surface and find a woman in a suit staring at her through the steam like a goddamned apparition, standing perfectly still with her hands clasped behind her back. Vincent gasped aloud, which in retrospect wasn't endearing. Claire, who had obviously just come from the office, was a very corporate-looking woman in her late twenties. You must be Vincent. She picked up the folded towel that Vincent had left on a lawn chair and extended it in a get-out-of-the-pool kind of way. So Vincent felt she had no choice but to climb the ladder and accept the towel, which was irritating because she'd wanted to swim for longer. You must be Claire, she said. Claire didn't dignify this with a response. Vincent was wearing a fairly modest one-piece swimsuit, but felt extremely naked as she toweled off. Vincent's an unusual name for a girl, Claire said, with a slight emphasis on girl that struck Vincent as uncalled for. I'm not that young, Vincent wanted to tell her, because at 24 she didn't feel young at all. But Claire was possibly dangerous, and Vincent hoped for peace. So she answered in the mildest tone possible. My parents named me after a poet, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Claire's gaze flickered to the ring on Vincent's finger. Well, she said, we can't choose our parents, I suppose. What kind of work do they do? My parents? Yes. They're dead. Claire's face softened a little. I'm sorry to hear that, she said. They stood staring at one another for a beat or two. Then Vincent reached for the bathrobe that she'd left on a deck chair. And Claire said, sounding more resigned than angry now, Did you know you're five years younger than me? We can't choose our ages either, Vincent said. Ha. Not a laugh, just a spoken word. Ha. Well, we're all adults here. Just so you know, Claire said, I, found this, I find this situation absurd. But there's no reason we can't be cordial with one another. She turned away and walked back into the house. Vincent's mother had read a lot of poetry, having formerly been a poet herself. When Edna St. Vincent Millay was 19 years old, in 1912, she began writing a poem called Renaissance that Vincent must have read a thousand times in childhood and adolescence. Millay wrote the poem for a competition. The poem didn't win, but it nonetheless carried an electric charge that transported her from the drudgery of New England poverty to Vassar College, from there into the kind of bohemia that she dreamed of all her life. A different kind of poverty, the Greenwich Village circa 1917 variety. Poverty, but with late-night poetry readings and dashing friends. The point is, she raised herself into a new life by sheer force of will, Vincent's mother had said. And Vincent wondered, even at the time, she would have been about 11, what that statement might suggest about how happy Vincent's mother was about the way her own life had gone. 
this woman who'd imagined writing poetry in the wilderness, but somehow found herself sunk in the mundane difficulties of raising a child and running a household in the wilderness instead. There's the idea of wilderness, and then there's the unglamorous labor of it, the never-ending grind of securing firewood, bringing in groceries over absurd distances, tending the vegetable garden and maintaining the fences that keep the deer from eating all the vegetables, repairing the generator, remembering to get gas for the generator, composting, running out of water in the summertime, never having enough money because job opportunities in the wilderness are limited, managing the seething resentment of your only child who doesn't understand your love for the wilderness and asks every week why you can't just live in a normal place that isn't wilderness, etc. What Vincent's mother probably wouldn't have imagined, a life, an arrangement, in which Vincent wore a wedding ring, but was not actually married. I want you close, Jonathan said at the beginning, but I just don't want to get married again. His wife, Suzanne, had died only three years earlier. They never said her name. But while he didn't want to marry Vincent, he did feel that wedding rings created an impression of stability. In my line of work, he said, managing other people's money, steadiness is everything. If I take you out to dinner with clients, it's better for you to be a beautiful young wife than a beautiful young girlfriend. Does Claire know we're not married? Vincent asked the night Claire appeared by the pool. By the time Vincent had come in and showered, Claire had already left. Vincent found Jonathan alone in the south living room with a glass of red wine and the Financial Times. Only two people in the world know that, he said. You and me. Come here. Vincent came to stand before him in the lamplight. He ran his fingertips down the length of her arm and then turned her around and slowly unzipped her dress. But what kind of man lies to his daughter about being married? There were aspects of the fairy tale that Vincent was careful not to think about too much at the time, and later her memories of those years had an abstracted quality, as if she'd stepped temporarily outside of herself. On another night, they had cocktails at a bar in Midtown with a couple who'd invested millions in Jonathan's fund, Mark and Louise from Colorado. At that point, Vincent had only been in the kingdom of money for three weeks, and the strangeness of her new life was acute. This is Vincent, Jonathan said, his hand on her lower back. It's so lovely to meet you, Vincent said. Mark and Louise were in their 40s or 50s, and after a few more months with Al-Qaeda, she would come to recognize them as typical of a particular Western subspecies of moneyed people, as wealthy as their counterparts in other regions, but prematurely weathered by their skiing obsession. It's so great to meet you, they said, and Louise caught sight of Vincent and Jonathan's rings in the round of handshakes. Oh my goodness, Jonathan, she said, are congratulations in order? Thank you, he said in such a convincing tone of bashful happiness that for a disorienting moment, Vincent entertained the wild thought that they were somehow actually married. Well, cheers, Mark said and raised his glass. Congratulations to the both of you. Wonderful news, just wonderful. Can I ask, Louise said, big wedding, small? If we'd made any to-do about it at all, Jonathan said, you'd have been the first names on the guest list. Would you believe, Vincent said, that we actually got married at City Hall? Good Lord, Mark said. There's a certain efficiency to elopement, Jonathan said. Weddings are such elaborate affairs. We just didn't want all the hoopla. I had to convince him to take the day off work, Vincent said. He wanted to just go down there on his lunch break. 
They were laughing, and Jonathan put his arm around her. She could tell he appreciated the improvisation. Lying about being married troubled her conscience, but not enough to make her want to flee. I'm paying a price for this life, she told herself, but the price is reasonable. So that was an excerpt from The Glass Hotel. I hope you're all doing well in these very strange times, and I hope you enjoy the book if you have a chance to read it. Take care. Good afternoon. My name is Kathy Diamond, and I am here on behalf of the Eleanor London Cote St. Luke Public Libraries Monday, used to be Monday morning monthly book club, now it is Monday afternoon monthly book club. Last month, I talked about a book by Canadian author Michael Ondaatje, which was called War Light. And today, I would like to present Colson Whitehead's novel, The Nickel Boys. When I selected this title many months ago, I had no idea how particularly relevant the book would be today. And when I tell you a bit more about the book, you will see what I am referring to. Colson Whitehead is considered to be one of America's best contemporary novelists. He was born in New York City on November 6, 1969, and grew up in Manhattan. He is one of four children to successful entrepreneur parents who owned an executive recruiting firm. As a child, he went by his first name, Arch, later switched to Chip before switching to Colson, which is the name that he writes under and refers to himself today. He attended the elite prep Trinity School in Manhattan and then went on to study at Harvard University, where he graduated in 1991. Today, Mr. Whitehead lives in Manhattan and also owns a home which he very much enjoys in Sag Harbor in the Hamptons on Long Island. His wife is a literary agent and the couple have two children. After leaving college, Mr. Whitehead wrote for The Village Voice, the publication The Village Voice, and while he was working there, he began drafting his first novels. He has since produced nine book-length works, seven novels, and two works of non-fiction, including a meditation on life in Manhattan in the style of E.B. White's famous essay, Here is New York. His first book was published in 1999, and it's entitled The Intuitionist, and books came pretty regularly afterwards. One was called Sag Harbor, published in 2009, and in, in, sorry, in 26... 2016, his book, The Underground Railroad, which earned him a National Book Award for Fiction, as well as a Pulitzer Prize, became a bestseller, New York Times bestseller, Oprah Book Club's bestseller, and general bestseller. It has now been followed up by his book, The Nickel Boys, which I'll be going into more detail in a moment, which was published last year in 2019. 
When novelist, venerable novelist John Updike was reviewing Mr. Whitehead's first book, The Intuitionist, in The New Yorker back in 1999, he called Colson Whitehead an ambitious, scintillating, strikingly original writer, adding that he will be, he is one to watch. This 31-year-old, which was Mr. Colson Whitehead at the time, Harvard graduate with the vivid name of Colson Whitehead. And Mr. Updike's predictions definitely have come true. Mr. Whitehead's nonfiction essays and reviews have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, Granta, and Harper's. His nonfiction account of the 2011 World Series of Poker, you can see that Mr. Whitehead is quite um, an eclectic writer. He's able to write humor, he's able to write history or historical fiction. Um, so this book, which was called the 2011, a book about the 2011 World Series of Poker, was called The Noble Hustle, Poker, Beef Jerky, and Death, and it was published in 2014, also to great critical acclaim. He has taught at Princeton University, NYU, University of Houston, Columbia, Brooklyn College, Hunter College, as well as been writer-in-residence at such schools as Vassar College, University of Richmond, and the University of Wyoming. In spring of 2015, Mr. Whitehead joined the New York Times Magazine to write a column on language. His 2016 novel, The Underground Railroad, was a selection of Oprah's book club and was also chosen by then-President Barack Obama as one of the five books on his summer vacation reading list. It was awarded a, new, a number of medals as well, as I said, as the it won him the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2017. Whitehead's seventh novel, The Nickel Boys, was published in July of 2019, and it has recently won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So this is really quite an accomplishment. His last two novels, both The Underground Railroad and now The Nickel Boys, both received the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Currently, Mr. Whitehead says that he is working on an eighth novel, which he originally conceived of and began before he wrote The Nickel Boys. And this work in progress is a yet as yet untitled crime novel set in Harlem during the 1960s. Mr. Whitehead's much-hyped new novel, The Nickel Boys, is in some ways a continuation of his reassessment of African-American history that he began with the Underground Railroad. But The Nickel Boys is not really a sequel. Despite its focus on a subsequent chapter of Black experience, it's a surprisingly different kind of novel. The linguistic, um, I guess you could say antics, or, or the, the linguistic devices that have long dazzled Mr. Whitehead's readers in his previous books have been set aside here for a style that feels definitely more restrained as well as transparent. 
The Nickel Boys draws its inspiration from incidents of abuse at the real-life Dozier School for Boys. That's the real-life name of this school, which it was fictionalized in this book as the Nickel Academy. It is a now-closed reformatory school in Florida that operated for over a century. In fact, the school was functioned, functioned for 111 years. Though the facility opened with apparently good intentions to bring a more enlightened approach to the treatment of troubled and orphaned youngsters, it devolved into an underworld of torture, rape, and murder. Just last year, Florida officials, this is in 2019, Florida officials announced plans to search the campus of this school for yet more bodies hidden in unmarked graves. Mr. Whitehead, in his acknowledgments at the end of the book, explains that he only learned about this place in 2014 when he read a lengthy expository article in the Tampa Bay Times. And you can read this article. It's really very interesting. I did. If you search the, um, the name of the school, the Dozier School for Boys in Florida, and you read this article and it, you see where Mr. Whitehead got the material for this story. Mr. Whitehead's novel opens with a similar announcement about a state investigation into crimes once committed at a shuttered reformatory school. In the book, he calls it the Nickel Academy. Archaeology students are surveying the old campus and have discovered an unmarked grave that had been neatly erased from history. I'd just like to read you a little bit from the prologue of the book so you get an idea of Mr. Whitehead's writing style. Even in death, the boys were trouble. The secret graveyard lay on the north side of the Nickel campus in a patchy acre of wild grass between the old work barn and the school dump. The field had been a grazing pasture when the school operated a dairy, selling milk to local customers, one of the state of Florida's schemes to relieve the taxpayers' burden of the boys' upkeep. The developers of the office park had earmarked the field for a lunch plaza, with four water features and a concrete bandstand for the occasional event. The discovery of the bodies was an expensive complication for the real estate company awaiting the all-clear from the environmental study and for the state's attorney, which had recently closed an investigation into the abuse stories. Now they had to start a new inquiry, establish the identities of the deceased and the manner of death, and there was no telling when the whole damn place could be raised, cleared, and neatly erased from history, which everyone agreed was long overdue. All the boys knew about that rotten spot. It took a student from the University of South Florida to bring it to the rest of the world, decades after the first boy was tied up in a potato sack and dumped there. 
When asked how she spotted the graves, Jody said, the student, the dirt looked wrong. The sunken earth, the scrabbly weeds. Jody and the rest of the archaeology students from the university had been excavating the school's official cemetery for months. The state couldn't dispose of the property until the remains were properly resettled and the archaeology students needed field credits. With stakes and wire, they divided the area into search grids, dug with hand shovels and heavy equipment. After sifting the soil, bones and belt buckles and soda bottles lay scattered on their trays in an inscrutable exhibit. They called this a school, Professor Carmine said. You can hide a lot in an acre in the dirt. One of the boys or one of their relatives tipped off the media. The national press picked up the story and people got their first real look at the reform school. Nickel had been closed for three years. So if you remember, I said that the school closed in 2011 and this excavation was, was taking place in 2014. And this explained how the grounds had been vandalized, standard teenage vandalism. Even the most innocent scene, a mess hall or the football field, came out sinister. No photographic trickery necessary. The footage was unsettling. Shadows crept and trembled at the corners and each stain or mark looked like dried blood. As if every image caught by the video rig emerged with its dark nature exposed. The nickel you could see going in and then the nickel you couldn't see coming out. And that's the bit from the prologue that I wanted to read to you. So this is how the book opens. Whitehead, Mr. Whitehead returns to that contemporary story of how the archaeology, this archaeological dig is taking place by these students. He returns to that storyline periodically throughout his book, The Nickel Boys, but his real interest lies in what happened back in the 1960s. The hero of his novel is a young boy by the name of Elwood Curtis, a painfully earnest African-American teenager. He is smart, hardworking, and self-righteous enough to impress his elders and irritate his friends. He considers a record album of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches the best gift he has ever received. And I'd just like to read you another bit from the first chapter of the book talking about this gift, this gift of a record that he received from his grandmother. Elwood received the best gift of his life on Christmas Day, 1962, even if the ideas it put in his head were his undoing. This is a this is a this is such a sentence. Martin Luther King at Zion Hill was the name of the album, the only album he owned, and it never left the turntable. 
His grandmother Harriet had a few gospel records, which she only played when the world discovered a new, mean way to work on her. And Elwood was not allowed to listen to the Motown groups or popular songs like that on account of their licentious nature. His grandmother was a very religious and stern woman. She brought him up properly. The rest of his presents that year were clothes, a new red sweater, socks, and he certainly wore those out, but nothing endured such good and constant use as the record. Every scratch and pop it gathered over the months was a mark of his enlightenment, tracking each time he entered into a new understanding of the reverend's words, the crackle of truth. That's how Mr. Mr. Whitehead he describes this record, this record, this prized possession of young Elwood's life. He listens to the speeches of Martin Luther King, of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. over and over again. He reads about the protests and the bus boycotts in Life magazine, and he dreams of one day joining those brave witnesses in the civil rights cause. He knows that the battle will be hard, but he is convinced that justice will not forever be deferred nor victory delayed. From the start, Mr. Whitehead emphasizes Elwood's naivete. The boy refuses to acknowledge that this is a culture designed to humiliate and crush African Americans. Even when he is arrested, and this is what happens in the story, Elwood is arrested. He, he is hitchhiking one day when he's very excited because he's going to visit the new school. And he's a very smart boy and he's, he's been mentored by a teacher and he has an opportunity to start at a new technical college. His mistake here is, unknowingly, innocently, of course, that he, he takes a ride with a black man driving a stolen car. And when the police stop the car... The man who stole the car um, accuses Elwood of being, I mean, that's the inference in the, in the passage in the book, and Elwood is sent to reform school. That's how he ends up being sent to the Nickel Academy. And throughout all of this, so even when Elwood is arrested on this flimsiest of evidence, I mean, mistakenly arrested, that he still clings to his faith that goodness will be rewarded and that the rule of law will prevail. The Nickel Academy, as Mr. Whitehead presents it, is a place of well-groomed exteriors and encouraging principles. The superintendent lays out a system of discipline intended to lead young inmates who are called students, euphemistically, toward greater responsibility and improved behavior. They put the boys' fates in their own hands, one of the staff explains. It's up to you. This is what Elwood is told when he first gets taken to the Nickel Academy. The whole enterprise sounds as American as apple pie and Ben Franklin. Elwood consoles himself with the notion that 
He just had to keep doing what he had always done. Act right. And if he would act right, then success would follow. We, the readers, of course, have a feeling that this will be otherwise. At the end of his first day at Nickel Academy, Elwood falls asleep to a bone-chilling sound that we know will soon shatter his tender hopes. But that doesn't really matter in this book because it's not meant to be a story of suspense. We already come to this story, we the readers, knowing what lurks in the vestry, in the dormitory, the detention center, the jail cell, in any closed and unsupervised place where people are subjected to the whims of perverse men. But, and this is what makes the book bearable to read, almost bearable, some places not quite, that he reveals the clandestine atrocities of the Nickel Academy with just enough restraint to keep us in a state of wincing dread. He is superb at creating allusions to things, such as pain. When he refers to pain, it's a reference to a fractured wrist chained to a tree. And we know in our imagination, we can imagine what went along with this fractured wrist chained to a tree. And that's the true horror of the story. So this Elwood, our Elwood Curtis, the the hero, the protagonist of the story, is when we, as I say, when we first meet him, he's a diligent senior at a segregated Tallahassee high school that at the time functioned like so many others as if the Supreme Court had never ruled on Brown versus the Board of Education. And this intelligent and hardworking credit to his race, as Elwood was known, who stars in the his high school students' annual emancipation play, this boy who clings so hard to the illusion that the free world is within his grasp too. He perseveres, he tries. He came from a home that may have had no television, but with the Life magazines that he read and the recording, the only record, as I said, that he owns of Martin Luther King and Zion Hill, this is what keeps him going. And yet he is nonetheless sent to this reform school this horrible, horrible place where the staff, where the violent offenders were the staff. And there was, as as Mr. Whitehead describes, there was a white section, there was a white dormitory, a, a dormitory for the white boys and a dormitory for the black boys. So there were white boys there as well, also treated viciously, although, as he describes it, allocated marginally better food and slightly less hard labor than their segregated black peers. One of the best scenes in the story, one of the most powerful scenes, is a scene of the annual black versus white boys boxing match. 
and this is an addictive blood sport for the salivating locals. This is a, it's fixed. Of course, the results are fixed, which Elwood, again, the naive, innocent that he is, doesn't realize this. Um, but the locals come and they watch this. That's one of the most, and the sound of the, the sound of the fights, and you can just imagine this when you're reading this chapter. Whitehead wrestles with the words, Colson Whitehead, the author, wrestles with the words of Dr. Martin Luther King throughout the story. These words that are so firmly implanted in young Elwood, now a resident of this horrific Nickel Academy. And it's so hard for it seems hard for the author of the story to reconcile the words of Dr. King, which were, and this is a quote from Martin Luther King's speech, send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities after midnight hours and drag us out onto some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead and we will still love you. These are Dr. Martin Luther King's famous words, which Elwood is trying to keep in his mind as he lives these years at this at this horrible Nickel Academy. But the question remains, and this is the question that the author is grappling with in this book, how can these words of Dr. Martin Luther King be true? How can a black man trust, a black person trust, or anyone trust, in the ultimate decency that lived in every heart if they see what is going on around them. If, as Elwood sees, they are only out to break you. Could it possibly be true that hate cannot drive out hate, that only love can do that, as Dr. Martin Luther King said? What a thing to ask Elwood can't help thinking as his story as the story goes on what an impossible thing and so the story continues the story continues it describes the boxing match it describes the cruelty that the boys endure it describes what happens to elwood when he and his friend who is a much more street smart and savvy and practical boy by the name of turner who befriends our naive, innocent Elwood, and the two of them try, they try to escape. But escape doesn't happen very easily because any of the boys who escape are chased after, of course, and usually brought back. Whether they are brought back alive or not is something that happens in the story. But the real focus of the novel, and and while we're reading it, Whitehead just keeps us in this state, as I said, with he writes with just enough restraint to keep us reading, able to read, but in this state of dread. The novel's real focus, though, is not this relentless flow of abuse that Elwood is living through at the Nickel Academy, but his reaction to it. Because as I said, he keeps thinking of Dr. King's remarks about the degradations of Jim Crow and the need to transform that degradation into action. Elwood tells himself, I am stuck here, but I'll make the best of it. You could almost cry when you read this line. 
He persists in imagining that he can chisel each roadblock into another stepping stone along his inspiring path beyond adversity. How, the novel wonders, will a young man like Elwood, flush with Dr. King's words and imprinted with the nobility of the U.S. Constitution, respond to the repudiation of every decent expectation to what Whitehead describes as indiscriminate spite? How, in other words, can African Americans endure in a country that preaches such idealism but has delivered such misery? The Nickel Boys feels feels like a smaller novel than the Underground Railroad. It's only just a bit over 200 pages. But ultimately, it's a tougher one, even a meaner one. It shares conversation with works by authors such as James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, and especially Martin Luther King. In the trials of its hero, young Elwood, Whitehead dares to test the great preacher's doctrine of inexorable love. Whitehead, it seems he is questioning Dr. King's Dr. King's doctrine of if you just love, if you just love them enough, if you just you know, turn the other cheek, then eventually right and justice will prevail. Will it really be so, it seems, that Mr. Whitehead is asking in this book? King promised his white oppressors that we will still love you. In the comfort of his grandmother's house, until he gets taken to the notorious Nickel Academy, Elwood found that audacious promise powerful and inspiring. But in the factory of agony that is the Nickel Academy, he finally realizes what a thing to ask. And what a troubling novel this is. It shreds any easy confidence in the triumph of goodness and leaves in its place a hard and bitter truth about the ongoing American experiment. One that we are seeing the results of these very days and weeks. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to meet you again at next month's Book talk. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.